you know, often I'm competing against organisations that are non-Indigenous organisations that have mentioned Aboriginal people in their applications, but because they're a large organisation that gets funding all the time, they're the safe bet, right? So often people are shooting in the basketball court from right under the hoop instead of trying to take a three-point shot and trying to take a chance. And I think we've got to take more chances and we've got to listen. This is Listen, Learn, Respect, a podcast by the National Apology Foundation, coming to you from River City Studios in Mianjin, Brisbane, home of the Turrbal and Yuggera people. My name is Jessica Rudd and I'm co-chair of the foundation. And a warning, this episode contains discussions of suicide. If you need help, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Today on the show, we're discussing closing the gap target number five, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students achieving their full learning potential. Joining us is adjunct professor Corey Tutt, OAM, a Gamilaroi man from Nowra, uh, via Walgett on the New South Wales coast. Um, if you haven't already heard of him and or his hugely impactful not-for-profit organisation, Deadly Science, we're going to hear more about the incredible work he does to give First Nations students and communities in Australia access to the wonders of STEM. Yamakori, and on behalf of the National Apology Foundation, thank you so much for joining us on Listen, Learn, Respect. Yama, thank you so much for having me. And um, it's, and it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you, Jess, and um, the foundation as well. Thank you for all the amazing work that you do. No worries. And likewise. So what was it like for you growing up before you set up Deadly Science? Yeah, my childhood was difficult. Um, when I was eight years old, I'd witnessed a fatal accident with my classmate and that was really difficult for me. You know, moved around a little bit, um, spent time in South Australia, spent time in Bungonia of all places, spent time in Dapdo. Um, my dad left when I was nine months old, so I didn't know my dad. I was it was like my mum and my sister, that was kind of it. Um, and that's all we knew apart from my pop. He would come down and visit every now and again and ring me every week. That was the only family we had. The real constant for me was the animals that I would find. So I was I was kind of that kid that was always picking up lizards and snakes in the playground and I'm always getting in trouble for that. I remember I got kicked out of cubs. When mum tried to put me in scouts, I lasted a week. I got expelled for picking up a snake. <laughs> <laughs> always reptiles? It was always reptiles, you know, possums, birds, you know, bats. My grandfather, who was a um, Gamilaroi man from Walgut, he um, was really big on trying to get me to stick to animals and things that I was good at. So he gave me a book called Reptiles in Colour. It was authored by Dr. Harold Cogger. You know, I, I kind of spent my whole childhood, like, getting lost in that book and you know, when when I was young, he would force me to kind of read the book to him. It wasn't until I was older that I started to get that, you know, he didn't get the opportunity to learn how to read um, or write. So he was making sure that I knew how to read and write um, via making me read this book to him. And, and to be honest, it, it really charred a passion and I really wanted to be like Cogger, but I wanted to be the Blackfella version. I wanted to be the Corey version. You know, going to school and stuff, I was often told I couldn't do things and I was I would sort of like withdraw myself from them or not probably apply myself in the best way. And I got to year 10 um, and it was like the sort of um, high school certificate and the careers wise asked me what I wanted to do when I left school. And I said, I wanted to be a wildlife documenter. I want to be like David Attenborough. The words that came out of his mouth next were like, you know, kids like you don't go and work with animals. They don't become zookeepers. They don't become wildlife documenters. 
you need a PhD to do that. You need a degree in zoology and there's no jobs in it. Um, so you're better off sticking to a trade or you end up dead or in jail. I ended up saving about 1200 bucks. And then um, I was doing this kind of um, bridging course into animal studies. And this girl that I knew from DAPTO had gone to this wildlife sanctuary. I'd saw her on her Facebook. She'd gone to this wildlife sanctuary in Western Australia. And, you know, to give you a, to give the listener and yourself like a bit of a insight into what this place was like, it was kind of like Tiger King, but for kangaroos. This lady was like taking photos, holding rifles, and she just like shot these snakes. Um, and she would just like kill these snakes, these dugites, white spotted brown snakes and um, tiger snakes. And I was kind of a bit peeved off by it. And I thought I'd go over there and I'd, you know, be a reptile expert and convince her not to kill these snakes because it's obviously illegal to kill snakes in Australia. Didn't quite work out. <laughs> I came back and I started working at Shoalhaven Zoo. And I remember I was so keen. Like I got there at five in the morning like two hours before um <laughs> and I was just so keen to like you know I was I was doing it I was achieving my dream I was I was gonna even I was a volunteer at that time I was like I was gonna get the job I was gonna um you know I was gonna work there forever maybe one day even buy the zoo that was the goal right but I remember the head keeper saying to me he's like you're gonna last like two weeks like he he was just like you're not gonna last long at all and I know he didn't like me very much and but he kind of spurred me to be better I still remember it. The owner of Shining Zoo gave me my first zookeeper uniform. And it's it's still one of the proudest moments of my life. Like getting your gang colors, probably if you're a gangster or like getting a jersey if you're a footy team. But for me, it looked like Swiss cheese. Like it had so many holes in it. I remember wearing it at home and like, I would just wear it all the time. Like, to be honest, I probably wore it down the shops even where I wasn't working just because I was so <laughs> proud of it. That's awesome. It was such a big deal for me. Like, as, a, as an Indigenous kid who just dreamt of working with animals, who, you know, had, who just had this drive, like, to just, to do it. And, you know, I used to love, basically, I'd, I'd hold a baby crocodile and I'd tell all these kids, like, you know, it's got free eyelids. It, it's got this salt gland that can remove salt from salt water. Um, it's an estuarine crocodile, can live in fresh water, you know, um, and like even the Burmese python, you know, they grow up, they grow to 120 kilos and they can eat 120 kilos. So it's like, you know, you tell these kids these amazing facts and you'd, you'd kind of like, it was what I loved, you know, I love that sharing of information. I love that because that's what my pop did for me when I was young. And um, kind of what happened after that was, um, you know, I met a friend down the zoo and, and this guy loved animals just as much as I did. He was crazy about it, but he came from a bit of the rough, the rough side of the tracks and, and he was doing the same thing that I was doing. And, you know, we, we bonded and unfortunately um, one day, um, you know, I got a call and, and he'd committed suicide and that was, that was it for me. I, I kind of started to lose the love of the zoo. Like it was really hard because I just couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it anymore. Like, and yeah. Anyway, as all good stories start, I found a, a classified ad in the Illawarra Mercury um, back in the day, and it was for an alpaca handler. I thought, you know, okay, like I, I thought, you know, I'm handling a crocodile, a four-meter crocodile could eat me. How hard could an alpaca be? Um, and tell me, Corey, how hard can an alpaca be? Pretty hard? The first alpaca I went to shear was masculinely named Pikachu, and um, <laughs> headbutted me in the face. And it was at, at this farm in Bundanoon in the Southern Highlands, and um you know, it, it cracked me and I, I kind of had this huge shiner under my eye for ages. And 
you know, the amount of jokes, like, did you run into a wall or anything, but I actually broke my cheekbone, um, which was pretty bad. Ow. Yeah. Wow, they're very strong, aren't they? They're very alpacas. strong, but, like, that was the moment I realized I was a resilient person because I kept shearing and I kept going with it. And I spent the next two years, um, you know, in the off-season, I'd get the odd job. I think I got a job at a petting zoo in the off-season of shearing. But, you know, I'd spend from August to, you know, April – I would spend my time going around Australia and New Zealand with James sharing our packers. And, you know, I learned the difference between Suri and Makaya. I learned how to cut the teeth. I learned how to rebuild hand pieces. I learned how to sharpen um, hand pieces and like combs and cutters. I learned what a micron was in the wool. I learned how to class wool. I learned how to toss wool. I learned how to um, basically press fleece. Um, every aspect of that job I learned. And, you know, that was a STEM job. Why did you start Deadly Science in the first place? You know, when you like, you get a job that pays more, but then there's less responsibility and it becomes really boring. That was kind of like what it was at UCID, which was, it was great, but it just didn't fulfill my brain. Cause like, I, I'd kind of look for stuff to do um, because I just kind of would, I've already done it in a previous role. So I started volunteering with another charity called AIM, had a careers day and I like just just set the picture of the careers day there was like um spray painting in one corner there was army in one corner there was like you know the stereotypical like you know get a career in the army you know yeah bumper stickers and water bottles and bumper stickers like wristbands you know all that and sorry lanyards that's all right yeah lanyards um but it really bothered me because I was like, you know, how many Indigenous kids have come from where I've come from? And, you know, this is in the heart of Redfern. This is at UCID. And um, I started talking to these kids about science and, and how I was doing science. Like I was working in a lab at the time and, you know, I was part of some pretty complex studies. So I'd actually print these papers off and I would kind of study them and tell the kids about them and tell them about, you know, some of the the like experiments and and the cells and and it became really popular because the kids just would crowd around me and they just loved it. Um, and, and see, this and- is the thing I find amazing about your story. And sorry to interrupt you here, Corey, no, but um, what I find amazing about your story is that STEM slapped you around so many times. You know, it it actually yeah. did. It, it, it pushed <laughs> you yeah. and still does. And it, it really pushed you. It, it was unforgiving early on in a way that you would hope a, a career would you know, at least be receptive to somebody who was as curious and determined as you. And yet, despite all of that, you were able to go, actually, this is something that I'm wedded to. This is, this is my life. And this is why I'm really interested in why Deadly Science came about, because I I guess for a lot of people, having been through that level of adversity, they would have gone, uh, maybe this isn't for me and I'll turn to humanities. (laughs) Society, when I was young, expected me to crumble and die young and get incarcerated. That was what is. That's what society expected of me. Um, with my upbringing, my background, my life, where I grew up, that's what that's what society expects of my life. And you know, for me, it was 
it was really hard, like especially in the early days of Deadly Science, because I had this mad idea to get all these, you know, get all these black fellas into STEM and, and science. And I remember I, I walked around the University of Sydney and I knocked on literally 90% of the professor's doors there and they shut in my face immediately. You know, there was two professors um, that really helped me. It was Marianne Large and Alice Motion. And I remember like I organized this um, Indigenous STEM luncheon. So anyone that was interested could come along and, you know, and they were like the two academics that turned up. The rest would tell me, oh, you need to go get a PhD to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. Um, we won't talk to you until you've got your PhD. And it's like, okay. Um, so, you know, I, I started um, Googling remote schools and I found a school in Central Australia with, with 15 books in its entire school. And I was really hurt by that because I remembered, you know, the the book that changed my life was just given to me by my grandfather who was an Aboriginal man and it was old, you know, and I thought, well, actually, you know, if these guys aren't going to help me, I'm going to do something drastic. I'm going to get a second job. I went to Dimmicks and I dropped a thousand bucks. So I walked through the children's section. I just picked up every STEM book, every Indigenous book there was, and I packed it up and sent it to the school. And this teacher got this package one day and, you know, all of a sudden that school had, you know, 80 books in its library instead of 15 and they're brand new. You gave a school a library. Pretty much, Yeah. It's, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing for a person to do, to be working two jobs and in that second job, just be like, right, I'm going to say, I'm going to get enough money that I can go to Dimmicks and I can buy a school, a library. I've got nothing to do with this school at all, but I can identify with its plight, even if it hasn't really articulated one. And so what did this teacher say when they opened this package? They called me in tears um, because I put my phone number in there and I just wrote a, I just wrote a small letter saying like, you know, I heard you don't have many books, like just really wanted to help. And, and this is how I'm going to help. And um, that teacher ended up becoming a really good close friend of mine. Um, it has been ever since. And I had $8,000 in my bank account when I started Deadly Science and I had zero within a month. Um, that's how much I'd spent on books. And even to the point where I was like, almost going to be deciding whether to eat or, you know, go out with my friends or provide books to these kids and I chose books because it was creating a huge impact on the kids because I was just picking up these new books and all and books in the hands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids are better than books on the shelf so it became much bigger than that I started a GoFundMe page um, because I just couldn't handle the two jobs anymore and going to the post office every day because I just I burnt out quite badly um, I started posting what I was doing on my Twitter account and showing, um, you know, these books that I was sending off to community. I tagged Brian Cox in one of them and he responded and followed me and, and sent some books, um, which was great. Um, Dr. Carl got involved. He would provide books for me to, to send. Um, and then it became so much more, but then people kept giving me all their books to send and I didn't have enough time to, send them all or vet them all as well. So like, you know, you want to make sure what you're sending to community is good, you know, um, and, and good quality as well. Cause you know, these kids deserve nothing but the best. There's always a moment, uh, isn't there when you start something, whether it's an organization or whether it's a business, uh, where you go, actually what I'm doing is a thing. Where was that moment for you where you went, oh, I see, I can see purpose here. I can see mission. I can see, 
uh, the value of what I'm doing and its impact? And where was that turning point? You know, that the GoFundMe page was really interesting because like it was slow going at first. Um, people would donate $5 here and there. Um, it was enough to cover probably the fuel getting to the, the, the bookshop. And then I started this thing where I, I started to draw a logo on a napkin in a pub and it looked terrible. Um, and then my cousin um, actually redid the logo and um, it became the deadly science logo. And then I, I, I put it on a shirt and I said, you know, anyone who donates $30 or more would get a deadly science shirt. And that would go into providing, um, you know, these kids books, telescopes, microscopes. Um, I bought my first telescope, which I sent to community. I bought my first microscope that I sent to community, which was a secondhand one that I got off Facebook marketplace. Um, it became something more, um, more and more and more as it grew. And I remember I got this email, um, one day and it was, you know, you've been nominated for young Australian of the year. And I'm like, uh, who would nominate me for something like that? Cause you know, I, I didn't, I didn't even know what it was. Right. Like, you know, you got to understand that how I grew up, the only praise you got, um, back in DAPTO was when you were scoring tries for DAPTO Canaries and you might've got a, if you were lucky enough, you got a burger card to go to Macca's and buy a Big Mac. Um, that was what you got. That was the only encouragement I got as a kid, um, for anything, um, in terms of awards or anything like that. So, you know, it was completely foreign world to me. And, you know, I was, I ignored it at first. And I still remember I w walked into my boss's office. I'm like, you know, I've been nominated for Young Australian of the Year. And she goes, is it related to your job that you do here? And I'm like, no. And she goes, well, I don't care. I'm like, fine. It's all right. So I decided to leave that job because I thought it was a bit toxic. I worked for Professor Marie Thiessen on the Cracks in the Ice Indigenous Project where I um, created harm minimization resources for Aboriginal people suffering from crystal methamphetamine dependence, which is a completely different field of research. But that lady gave me a shot. Um, at being a researcher and an academic because, and, you know, to be honest, she had every right just to pull the pin on me because the second week I started there, I won the Young Australian of the Year for New South Wales. Um, and it was, you know, I was still doing this thing called Deadly Science and, and she was allowing me to, you know, work flexible hours to go and hang out with these kids in Redfern and La Perouse, um, but then come back and, and work on the research as well that award ceremony, um, you know, nothing prepared me for that moment. And my life changed from that moment. All of a sudden I had a camera in my face, an ABC camera. Um, people were taking my photograph. I had this, you know, glass thing in my hand and, and deadly science was just growing. And the amount of schools were just getting, there was more and more schools getting involved. There was the GoFundMe page had raised a quarter of a million dollars um, within you know, a couple of weeks and, and it was early 2020 that we set up the charity and it became much more. And, and I started doing this thing called Deadly Learners, which I started zooming into all the schools and just talking about all the science and, and like, here's a scientist, like here is your opportunity as a kid in a remote community to meet a scientist. And it became a thing. So like every Thursday we would do a Zoom session with a school in the Kimberley um, or like a school in the NT and, um, my, my boss, Marie, would walk past and I'd call her into the office and I'm like, come say hi to these kids, Marie. I went to this thing called Gama Festival 
in 2019. I was sent by the unis and Indigenous staff member to go there. And I found it really hard again because there was a staff member at UCID that saw the impact of deadly science, pulled me into her office and said, we're going to give you another role, but we we take over deadly science if you take this role and, and it's ours. I said no to it. And the power of this this charity, this thing, that this brand that like was, you know, I was in Yurikala and all these kids were just running up to me and saying, Corey, Corey, look at this lizard I found. Like, you know, oh, this is my science question. And at that point, people were like, people were seeing the value of it and trying to take it off me. Um, and I had to fight for this thing that I built for these kids um, because, you know, people saw it as a way to make money. And it's like, I didn't want to make money out of deadly science. I just wanted to do what was right. And which is so amazing uh, when I think about it, the sheer number of teachers or educators who failed you in your early life um, did not deter you from your belief or, I mean, your motto is a belief in education is freedom and science is hope. Is that right? Yeah. I've had really special moments in my life where I've just, I've just cried because I've like, you know, a, a single mum in the back of Bawarana who got a couple of books off me, which was nothing really. It was nothing out of, it wasn't even anything out of my way to, to send her a couple of books. She's, she's bawling her eyes out because she can read to her kids now, you know, or, um, there's a lady in um, Nemai, right, who has all these kids and, you know, every year I donate books to her kids and she just cries. Like she just says, thank you. Like there's this moments where you find what humanity actually is and, and how, and you, it's, it's very raw moments. And I, 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 to be honest, I think that only a few people in this lifetime because of the emergence of social media and stuff actually feel those moments but you do have a few in your life that that do um, make you realize the fragility of what we live in and like how good this world can be and how horrible it can be at the same time. And for me, it was one moment where that really speaks to me is um, this young girl who had a disability. She had cerebral palsy and her carer got in touch with me and she was working, the carer was working for a charity that was looking after this kid and said, this kid really loves stars and really wants to look through a, a telescope. And for me, you know, probably not understanding my limitations at that time in terms of funding and things like that, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Like, let's just make it work. I looked around and I said, oh, is there a telescope with a screen on it? So then she could look for a telescope and she could have that opportunity to see the stars. Um, I got quoted, I, I like I emailed Lisa Harvey-Smith. Lisa's like, I know these guys that are building telescopes for the blind but don't think it's going to work i got in touch with them they quoted me 40 grand to build this telescope thing i didn't have 40 grand at the time but i would have spent it in a heartbeat if i had it um, but i did the next best thing and i got this light projector this light projector kind of projects the galaxies um and it, it projects it onto the walls and, and onto the ceiling and i turned the lights off and i said to this kid like you know, I can't bring you to the stars, but I can bring the stars to you. And actually, here's an astronomy fact that I learned that when the Big Bang um, thing happened, all the atoms of the stars disintegrated and created life on Earth. So technically, you are a star um, and you are a star. You know, I gave her a Deadly Junior Scientist Award, which is the awards we gave to our kids that 
you know, um, did really well. And this, the smile on this kid's face, like the feeling of acceptance, the feeling of like, I would say euphoria of someone that probably goes through life wanting to do things and not having the opportunity because of their disability or maybe they maybe people make assumptions that because they're indigenous and they've got a disability they might not like stem and stem's not for them and science is not for them but this kid loved the stars and i i will never forget that there's two moments for me that really that really hit home and and really drive me you know we had another kid that i had this terrible day right and um where one of our deadly junior scientists passed away and it really cut me deeply um, this is a kid that I taught how to read by Zoom and it really bothered me because the, the kid was nine years old and this kid died of suicide and um, it cut me up so badly that this this young kid that I'd spent months and months and months helping in every single way, I, you know, and you kind of, it's like that that love, you know, that that gets lost and then I get a call from these kids from this place called Kurum House in um in North Queensland and these young girls that they go off country and they go and do these schools and these boarding houses and it's um it's deadly scientist Tatalia and she is reading me the book that I gave her for the first time from start to finish uninterrupted she just wants me to listen to her read a book it just gives you this like you know this overwhelming sadness you're feeling just gives you this like strength to keep going and these are the moments that i treasure and um it's the reason why i keep going and the reason why deadly science is so special is because it's not about kids becoming stem stem professionals or scientists it's about giving hope that they can and they believe that they can not every kid i work with is going to become a scientist but i want to make sure they believe they can ABS data shows that the retention rate of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students at high school decreased from 2022 to 2021. Hmm. How do you think we can turn that around? What we need to do is we need to invest in grassroots communities. So I guess having a lot of elders um, connected in with the classroom, um, resources that connect to kids. Like, you know, I wrote this book called The First Scientists right which is um it's really cool uh it's about first nation science but i think you gave my dad a copy of that and i and i got to give it to my children well i'm glad he didn't throw it out but <laughs> no of course not <laughs> i included the deadly science kids in it and and present present day things and i think you know a lot of our stem books and a lot of our science books and our resources don't actually include our people in it so how do you possibly think that a, a group of people could connect to something or an education system that doesn't connect with our people or doesn't represent us. So I think that the answer is really simple. And this, the answer is this include Indigenous perspectives in the curriculum. Um, we're sending teachers that graduate university to remote communities where they're not just a teacher. Sometimes they're the chef. Sometimes they're the ki- they're the person who put to picks up kids and takes them home. They're given way more responsibility than just a nine to five educator. And our teachers are, are definitely overworked, but especially in remote communities, you know, they're dealing with things that a normal teacher would not deal with um, because the communities are so tight knit and they're so far away from everything. So, you know, often teachers are the first responders in community. Often teachers are the ones that 
you know, dealing with death. Um, you know, they could have a classroom full of kids one day and there's a death in the community and then there's no kids. Everything shuts down. So what are we doing at the university level to prepare our teachers for that? We could be better um, in preparing our teachers, but also creating things for our teachers. So like um, remote teachers, there should be a help one that teachers can call, you know, and they can get that support, resources. Um, we could be doing more for education by supporting our teachers. Um, a lot of the scholarships and things and um, opportunities that teachers have for career development, a lot of our remote teachers and a lot of our Indigenous teachers don't have time to do that stuff because they're forced, like they're kind of having to do the NAIDOC week, they're having to do all the Indigenous curriculum stuff. But if we support our teachers in that ability to do that stuff, our education system is going to be stronger. I think, you know, your dad and and Julia Gillard um, and not, you know, this has got nothing to do with my political beliefs with two of the prime ministers that I, I believe that truly invested in education. You know, the reason why we have laptops in schools is because of your dad and, and Julia, like, you know, we need to have that investment again. And that is creating reliable internet for indigenous communities. Um, it is reducing the divide between resource um, and training as well and i think there's a spectrum of teachers in remote regional communities there's a very bad that can't get employed anywhere else so they get employed in remote communities probably shouldn't be working the school there's a young teacher that's looking for an opportunity and there's a teacher that's been there 20 30 years or 10 years who has just become a staple of the community eventually when that person on that um that's been there 10 20 years leaves because it's going to happen it creates a vacuum in the community um, and there's nothing there to support the community when that happens. Same with the young graduate. The young graduate is really keen. It's really builds a strong relationship with those kids, does their two years and just leaves. Those kids now lose their teacher that they're bonded with. So how can you possibly think they're going to get a great education if the new graduates given that carrot to stay in the community for two years, which is great, they get burnt out, they leave you have turnover of staff, turnover of teachers. Um, you have no way of those students, you know, using that bond with their teachers to actually improve their learning or educational outcomes because if that teacher is just going to bail on me, why should I go to school, you know? Yeah, so we need better succession planning and and to stop thinking of these educator roles as being purely educator roles rather think of them as being leadership roles and pastoral care roles that need to be planned for so that when they do move on, which is natural, and that, that turnover is natural, that we have people coming in who are being properly inducted into understanding the community role. Yeah. If I had a dollar for every time a teacher's called me in tears from a remote community in, at 11 o'clock at night or, or midnight, I wouldn't need funding. <laughs> I wouldn't ask for donations because I'd be one of the richest people in the world because... I've had to answer the phone on occasion with a number of teachers that have been suicidal um, because they haven't had the support. And, you know, I've become that kind of support person for them and I'm not really qualified to do that. There's been times where I've, you know, I've sacrificed life with my wife to help these communities and, and teachers. And I just wish that the powers that could help would kind of understand where these teachers are coming from, where these communities are coming from, where, you know, the communities, there's so much love in the Indigenous community. Like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they love better than everyone else. So we have 65,000 years of love. Like, and 
they're beautiful communities. So much good happens there. And part of the other issue is, is that when you flick on your news, you're only really seeing negative stories of Indigenous kids. You're not seeing the positive stuff. You're not seeing the kid in the classroom who's, you know, painted a beautiful picture for their teacher um, or like has gone to school every day. You're not seeing those stories. So, you know, people have a perception of Indigenous people that is not necessarily true. Mm. And, I mean, it's really interesting. Part of the part of the target of target number five in the Closing the Gap targets uh, is that by 2031, 96% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people aged 20 to 24 will attain year 12 or equivalent qualifications. You have brought the stars to someone. What are your thoughts on how to achieve that target? Is it achievable and how so? What can we be doing better to get there? It's achievable, but my problem is often the advice that is taken by the government is the wrong advice. And I mean that in the the nicest possible way. There's a lot of people trying to do good things. But there was a school in the NT recently that didn't have reliable internet that I had to buy modems for just so they could hook their computers up to the internet. Um, And that was not very far from Darwin. So, you know, a capital city. There is a huge digital divide. There's a huge divide in resources. Um, There's a huge divide in STEM teachers as well that are willing to teach science. You can only teach what you have in front of you. Um, Then if you don't have those resources, you've got excuses. And humans will look for anything, (laughs) any reason to make an excuse not to teach science in these communities because they can't. Like they physically can't. They don't have the internet. They don't have the resource. I think that if we are to really close this gap, we really need to look at one, the gap is not in knowledge, it's in resource. Um, We do not have the resources in these communities to effectively teach STEM in the classroom. Um, I know that. Majority of the remote teachers know that. Um, The government knows that for sure. Um, And part of the problem is, is that we need the infrastructure. So, you know, we need to connect our schools up to, to effective internet. We need minus 80 freezers in our AMSs. You know, we we need those vital resources because, you know, to be honest, there's, there is money to be made off Aboriginal people and their disadvantage. You know, there's money to be made off our disadvantage in education. There's money to be made off our incarceration. There's money to be made off, Um, our poor health outcomes. But the right thing to do and the humane thing to do is to provide our people with the resource and the education to build our own self-determination so that we can create some of these things for ourselves. As a charity founder and and someone who tries to go for funding and things like that, you know, often I'm competing against organisations that are non-Indigenous organisations that have worked with mentioned Aboriginal people in their applications, but because they're a large organisation that gets funding all the time, they're the safe bet, right? So often people are shooting in the basketball court from right under the hoop instead of trying to take a three-point shot and trying to take a chance. And I think we've got to take more chances and we've got to listen. Well, Corey, thank you for taking so many chances. Thank you for having enough faith to keep going Thank you for all of the work that you do and thank you so much for sharing your story with us today on Listen, Learn, Respect. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me and um, 
if anyone wants to get involved in deadly science you're more than welcome to whether it's a deadly learner lesson or a donation or just want to drop a hi and say thanks and um, hang out it's all good um but thank you so much for having me on your program it's um it's a pleasure if you'd like to get involved in deadly science visit deadlyscience.org.au or follow deadly science on social media If the themes in this interview raised issues for you, a reminder that you can call Lifeline anytime on 13 11 14. I'm Jessica Rudd, the co-chair of the National Apology Foundation. Thanks for joining us on Listen, Learn, Respect.